As you may have heard by now, I'm launching my own supplement line called Adapt Naturals in just a few weeks. We're starting with a daily stack of five supplements called the Core Plus Bundle, which are designed to add back in what the modern world has crowded out and help you feel and perform your best. But no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, the truth is that you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet or lifestyle. That's why we'll be launching the Adapt Naturals Core Reset app right alongside the Core Plus Supplement Bundle. This app will guide you through a 28-day kickstart program to dial in your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management. The Core Reset app features meal plans, recipes, shopping lists, guided movement and stress management exercises, tools, resources, and so much more. And we're so serious about helping you to optimize your diet and lifestyle that we're literally giving the app away for free to all Adapt Naturals customers. When used together, the Core Reset app and Core Plus Supplement Bundle will give you a powerful yet simple and affordable way to take charge of your health and start living the life you want to live. Watch out for more information about Adapt Naturals in the next few weeks. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. Back pain is one of the most common medical complaints today and it seems to be on the rise. According to Statista, almost 40% of the US population experienced lower back problems in the last three months in 2019 compared to just 28% in 1997. And if you're 65 years and older, that goes up to 46% of adults experiencing lower back pain in the last three months. 54% of the people who have lower back pain have had it for five years or longer, and almost 75% take non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen to manage the pain. Now, this is a huge problem because a growing body of research has linked the use of NSAIDs like ibuprofen over a long period of time to everything from rebound pain to ulcers to GI disorders to kidney damage. So we clearly need a new approach to both understanding and addressing back pain. And that's what we're gonna cover in today's episode. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Steffi Cohen as my guest. In addition to being a doctor of physical therapy, she holds 25 world records in powerlifting and was the first woman in the history of the sport to deadlift 4.4 times her body weight. I can't even imagine deadlifting four, almost four and a half times my body weight. She recently took a break from powerlifting and transitioned to professional boxing, where she has a record of two wins, zero losses, and one draw. But Steffi didn't have an easy road to success. At one point, she suffered from such severe lower back pain that she couldn't tie her shoes without difficulty. Unfortunately, through the approaches that we'll discuss in this episode and that she outlined in her recent book, Back in Motion, she was able to fully recover and go on to break multiple world records in powerlifting, arguably one of the most demanding sports on your lower back. Dr. Cohen's an inspiring athlete and a wealth of knowledge in this area, and her method of addressing back pain has empowered thousands of people to achieve a pain-free state and reach higher levels of performance in their sport. I learned a lot myself in this conversation, and I think you will too. Let's dive in. Steffi, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about your story. You've had an incredible career with uh, 25 world records in powerlifting, and you were the first woman to deadlift almost four and a half times your body weight, which I cannot even imagine doing. 
and now you switched over to boxing and are uh, enjoying a good record there. I think two wins and zero losses, one draw. But I know it hasn't always been easy. You had a period of time where you had pretty intense back pain and couldn't really even tie your shoes without experiencing pain. So, yeah, I'd love to just hear about what your journey has been. You know, how uh, how did you get started? What what was that initial injury and how that how did that impact you? And and what did you do to get through that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I started my athletic career when I was eight years old playing soccer back home in Venezuela, where I was born and raised. Um, I sucked at the beginning. <laughs> I was really bad, but I was just doing it, honestly, out of the love for the sport. And, you know, one thing that we do as, one thing that we have as kids that we lose as we get older is patience and understanding of just how long, or actually it's naiveness of how long it takes to actually get good at something, you know, because you're doing it just, to play with your friends, to be outdoors, to enjoy the sunshine, you know, maybe to make your dad proud or your mom, things like that. But you don't, you're not um, outcome oriented. You're, you're so much more in the moment, so much more process oriented. And that's something that we definitely lose uh, over time. And I'll touch back. There's a reason why I'm mentioning this. So I'll, I'll get back to that. So I finished my soccer career when I was about 18, 19, I actually ended up moving to the States with a, with a potential soccer scholarship uh, that I ended up turning down because, I mean, moving from South America to, to the States wasn't something easy to do by yourself. There's, there's a lot of just differences in the way things work that you have to try to figure out on your own and get accustomed to the culture, um, the education system, the way that people the way that the institutions run testings like for example scantrons weren't a thing in in right. south america so even small things like that can can really throw you off and, and make you have to adjust and and get accustomed to as well simple things like doing your own laundry or understanding what you have to eat how you how much you have to eat what kind of foods you have to eat um obviously like socially it's much humor is much more different you know, South America to, to, to the state. So that's also another adjustment that you have to make. So I kind of got to a point where I had to make a decision between really taking uh, my school, my education seriously and want, trying really trying hard to get good grades and figuring out my place now in, in, in a new society or, or keep playing soccer. So that was kind of a, a fork in the road, a difficult decision that I had to make and ended up uh, leaning more into education, come from a Jewish Hispanic family that heavily values traditional education, formal education, and and that just kind of was part of of my values growing up. You know, placing a lot of importance on school and and having having making sure that you have a plan B and that you have something to fall into if if things don't go as planned. And we all know how kind of delicate and volatile people's athletics, athletic careers can be, you know, it can all be gone in the blink of an eye, just one injury, one, one bad lift, one bad punch, and it's all over. So I really wanted to make sure that I had a solid um, educational foundation. So I decided to move back to Miami because it was much closer to home. It's just a two hour and a half flight from Miami to, to Venezuela, and it's just much more central. And the culture was something that I was much more accustomed to as well. It was just 
more comfortable for the time period of my life that now looking back, I wish I would have just, you know, toughened it up and, and stayed there and try to figure out how to make it happen for myself, stay playing soccer and try to figure out multiple things at a time. But, you know, everything's easier or better in hindsight. Yeah, that's for sure. So when I, when I gave up and I say gave up because, because I really did, when I gave up my dream of, of playing soccer after several months, I just kind of felt like there was such a massive void in, 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 in my heart really. And I realized that I wasn't ready to give up that part of my identity, which was being an athlete. I still felt like I had much more to give. And even if it wasn't through soccer, I just wanted to look for another physical or sports outlet to dedicate some time to and in, in, in trying to trying to climb my way to the top in a different sport. So that started what I consider a, a discovery period of trying different things out to see kind of not only what sticks, but what most aligns with my skills, my talent, and my passion at the time. Like I didn't want to just do a sport because I liked it. I wanted to, I wanted to pick a sport that, that I had kind of an innate aptitude, aptitude for that I could, that I could objectively and rationally get better at over time. So that's kind of how I landed into CrossFit. That was my first uh, taste for lifting weights. And I really wanted to go to the CrossFit Games. That was around a time, 2010, 2011, where the CrossFit Games were just getting started and everybody wanted to be a games athlete. Everybody thought that just doing your regular WOD CrossFit class once a day, you could make it to the games kind of thing. And in that pursuit, I wanted to focus on Olympic weightlifting because it was my weakest link. Strength was my biggest weakness. So I started devoting more time to Olympic weightlifting, found myself an amazing coach. His name was Camilo Garcia, who coached for the um, national Cuban team. And he kind of took me under his wing and, and really, really wanted, wanted to make me an Olympic champion. Like that was his promise to me. So I did that for about six years. And again, I found myself in a much similar situation to uh, undergrad where, where I knew that the next, the next logical step professionally for me was to go to graduate school just in order to be taken seriously in an industry that's so male dominated that I knew I was gonna, I knew I was gonna have to, to, you know, work hard to gain the respect of, of the, the fitness industry in general, especially because of one, how polluted it is and two, how male dominated it was. So I understood that the, the logical step for me was to, to get a degree that kind of gave me a little bit more power of authority to speak on the topics I wanted to be speaking about and to, to obviously coach and do the things that I wanted to do. So I started, I got into grad school to get my doctor in physical therapy. And again, you know, at the beginning, I was trying really hard to do both. I had in the back of my mind, I had that story of, you know, when I, when I quit playing soccer because I couldn't do both things and I just refused to let that happen to me again. So I was trying to do literally the impossible. Just this time was even harder because grad school is not a joke. Grad school is a full-time job, you know, no matter how you see it. So I was the first six months of grad school. I was, I traveled with my barbell everywhere that I went so that I could 
any time that I had during the day to squeeze in my workout, I would do it. Like I would even pull pull into an LA fitness or, you know, just pull into the, the, the university gym just with my barbell and I would do my workout at whatever time I had, even if it meant like skipping half an hour of a class or uh, skipping half an hour of the 1130 class to 12 and then half an hour from the next one after lunch. I would just try to figure it out like that. And well, at the same time, obviously, making sure that I'm passing my classes. I never failed a full class in my entire life. Like I was never an A plus student, but I'd never failed a class. So in my mind, that wasn't even a, a possibility of something that could happen to me. So it was December and uh, I went for my, for my winter break, Christmas, everything. And I come back home and there's a pile of letters like this underneath my door. And I'm like, oh my God, what's this? Committee of Academic Review. Apparently I had failed a class with a 74. In any class at any given point in time, if you get any less than a 75, you get kicked out of the program. And then you have to write an appeal and explain why you got a 74 and then maybe get granted a second chance kind of thing. But because I had missed all the letters that they were sending me, they just effective immediately removed me from the program because I wasn't responding to their letters. They probably just assumed I didn't want to be part of it anymore. Anyway. So get kicked out of grad school, have to sit in the academic uh, committee of academic review, explain my situation and pretty much convince them to give me a second chance. And I got in, I, I was, I remember sitting down in the, at this like round table and the professor on my left was like, Steph, I just don't think that you're as strong as a student as you think you are. You know, I think you need to just pick one thing and focus on that, but I don't think that you have the, the, the capability of doing both. And I think you're going to require extensive uh, psychological counseling to uh, to really let go of that part of your uh, of your identity of this, the sports part. Like you got to give that up. It's it's too it's it's long gone. You know, you're 26, you're 25, 26. Like you better give that up and focus on what really matters. And it was that that really kind of lit a fire under my ass. I'm like, no, like now just because you said that I won't do that. Like I have to, I have to prove it just to myself that I can do both. Like I, I can't be in the same situation twice and again, make the same decision and, and probably 10 years down the line, again, regret that I didn't really, really give it my all. So that's kind of how, that's kind of how I land into, into powerlifting. I say, all right, like the mistake I made before was that I, I quit entirely instead of, you know, maybe doing 20% less. Of, of the sport and dedicating that 20% to my school. So this time I'm gonna do something similar. I'm gonna keep lifting. I'm just gonna do Olympic lifting twice a week instead of 12 sessions. I was doing double sessions like a crazy person. Two or three sessions of weightlifting a week. And the rest of the time, I'm still gonna go to the gym for much less time. And I'm just gonna get stronger because if I get stronger, then um, my, if, if I get stronger in, three basic movements, the squat, the bench, and the deadlift, logically, my snatch and my cleaning jerk will eventually go up. Like they can't go down from there. If I'm getting, if I'm getting, if my absolute level of strength is going up and picked up a barbell for the first time, did my first, uh, my sumo, my first sumo deadlift, getting into more powerlifting type training. And I pulled like 315, which was so rare at that time in powerlifting for women. You know, you don't, you didn't see that often and if you did it was the much bigger weight classes so I realized that there was again 
back to my discovery period when I was 20. You know, what are my skills, my talents, my passions? Does this does this align with the aptitudes that I was that I was God given? And are there any other skills that I could get better at to climb my way to the top in this one sport? And it just seemed so seemed so obvious that I did that I had something special that other people just didn't have just because of how exponential my growth was in the sport, just how fast I was able to progress and how, how um, seemingly easy it was for me to, to um, pick up on, on new, new skills, new movements, and how, how well I was adapting to that style of training. And that's kind of how I landed um, into powerlifting. Mm -hmm. And then uh, five years fast forward into powerlifting, uh, I guess two to three years, like I progressed so fast and my mindset was such that I was just so worried about getting strong fast, you know, getting strong fast. How fast can I climb to the top? How fast can I get strong? That I, that I forgot that I was still human and that there is an adaptation period that, you know, you're essentially fighting your biology at that point by just putting so much pressure on yourself and, 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 in such a massive amount of tonnage through your bones, your tendons, your ligaments, your muscles, your, your entire system. You know, you feel like you're invincible. You're young. You know, I didn't have any injuries. I hadn't accumulated any injuries in the past. So I just thought that I could just demand more and more and more and more from my body. And that ended up in, in, because I was developing my business in parallel with hybrid performance method, I felt such an immense pressure to continuously compete. And because I had so much pressure to continuously compete, I also felt like there was a certain level of expectation from the public every time that I would step onto the platform to continue breaking my, not only my own records, but world records, you know, things that people have never seen a woman do before. So I was ignoring all the signs and symptoms and signals that my body was, was, was sending me about the, the state of my body is specifically with, with my back and just started taking more and more ibuprofen, more and more ibuprofen, just ignoring it. Started having like just awful anxiety, panic attacks, just from school, taking Adderall, caffeine and the, the stress of everything. I was traveling every other weekend and I, it was just the perfect, the perfect environment for an absolute disaster, both mind and body. Um, and I really, I really did hit rock bottom, but I was so freaking stubborn, even like I just refused to quit anything because of, because of my past experiences that I just kind of kept going. And I ended up graduating in spite of, of my declining mental health and my awful panic attacks and anxiety and, and debilitating back pain ended up graduating and continuously competing and continuously breaking world records, but at a massive expense for my, for my physical and mental health. So yeah, graduated, uh, graduated grad school, a couple of years went by, I was just focusing on my business, competing a little bit less, trying to recover from those super stressful, awful three years. And then the pandemic hit. And it was the first time in like six years that I felt justified in taking time off, which is insane because I could, like you said, I could barely tie my shoes. You know, how is it that the only moment where I feel justified to take a, take a step back from my training and not compete is when the entire world shuts down. 
that's crazy to me, you know, but it was so, uh, it was, it was, it was so eye-opening at that time that, that it was kind of a, I burst my own bubble of reality where I was like, man, none of this matters if I don't have my health. It's not about how, how fast I can get strong. It's about how long can I stay injury-free and healthy. You know, it's not about what the, what people think about me is about what I think of myself. You know, I don't, I don't have to, I don't have to do this for anybody other than me. And I can't do anything if my body doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of, that was kind of a, a, the, a reality check of me to me. And I gave myself permission to not train for a powerlifting meet. You know, there weren't any powerlifting meets because the entire world stopped. But even then, like, I just felt, um, I was always scared of people coming to take it. So silly, not talking about it, but I was always scared of people coming and taking my records or of like my name being erased from the wall and like from the history of powerlifting. Like I always felt like there was another girl working harder than me, wanting to take everything that I had worked so hard for. And um, yeah, I just, it got to a point where my, my body was just so wrecked that it was just the right time. Every, everything kind of, all the pieces kind of fell together and it made sense for me to take, take a break from lifting. And naturally me being the person that I am, an athlete and such a, uh, a goal, goal-centered person, I had to find another outlet to, to just test myself, right, in, in, in another way. So because I had ignored my, my, my cardiovascular conditioning for so many years, like I'm talking about, Listen, when I was at my peak powerlifting shape, best shape ever powerlifting strength-wise, I was in my worst human shape possible. Like I would go up a flight of stairs and be out of breath, not even joking. Um, I couldn't jump high, not, not even high, like jump a little bit. No, I couldn't. Like my body just felt like it was made of, of aluminum. Like there was no motion, no movement. It was just really good up and down motion, very slow. Mm-hmm nothing fast, nothing to the side, nothing bendy. Like my body was just this rigid concrete thing that just was really good at down and up. Lifting heavy weights. Yeah. And that was it. So I was like, man, I really should do something for my heart. Started getting into like a podcast about breath and started looking into Brian McKenzie and Andy Galpin and just realizing again, just how bad I treated my body for so many years. And maybe also all the contributions that that might've had in, in my biology and my physiology and the contributions that I probably had for my panic attacks. You know, there's actual science that points at having poor cardiovascular health and an increase in concentration in CO2 and a decreased ability to clear that CO2 from your blood that heavily contributes to, to anxiety, panic attacks. So that was all of that was kind of my motivation to move into a more cardio-based sport so I decided to just put a, a heavy bag on my squat rack in my garage at home during the pandemic, during the lockdown. And I had a, a, a pair of pink gloves that a friend of mine gave me. And I just started hitting it just for cardio, you know, doing like three minute rounds. I knew that it was, that's as much as I knew about boxing at the time, that they did three minute rounds. And I probably had to look it up. I had no idea. I just knew that UFC was five and that boxing was less. And that's kind of how I got started into boxing. And I remember like when I first started, I had my coach Kareem who was coaching me on this street, literally like on the street right here in front of my house. I had to kept, keep telling him, I'm like, Kareem, listen, 
I get intense really fast and I don't want this to happen to me with boxing because I'm going back to powerlifting. You know, this is just something I'm doing in the interim. I don't want to get too intense about it. You know, I just want to have fun doing it. And it's just me, impossible, right? So every time it was like, I would, I would get a workout in and it wouldn't go as planned. So I would want to repeat the workout the next day or even like in the afternoon. And slowly I just became super obsessed with boxing and turned pro six months later and I have three fights under my belt. And now I train full-time boxing. Are you thinking you are going to go back to powerlifting or are you, are you not sure? Are you you're just going to see how that, how boxing goes? So I don't think, I don't know. I mean, part of me, part of me feels even if I didn't go back to powerlifting with the intent of breaking more world records or being the best or beating people at competitions, I feel, you know, so much of, so much of what I have is thanks to the powerlifting community that I never want to fully let that go, you know, and I, I, I want to always try to give back. And yeah, if I, if my body allows me to participate in a meet in a, you know, an amateur way, like not trying to break records, if it, then that's if my personality allows me to do that. But in some way, shape or form, I always want to be uh, involved within that. The one thing in powerlifting that I definitely want to try to do is try to get a 600 pound deadlift. I think that that just having that one goal in parallel with boxing, that's something I can do. But obviously, I, I can't train full-time powerlifting and full-time boxing. Sure. But I think I can incorporate some deadlifting into my routine once every week or once every two weeks for for a, a period of time and try to get that 600 pound. Yeah, cool. Well, we'll be cheering for you. I've been a huge fan of Thrive Market since they launched eight years ago. I love having my favorite healthy products shipped right to my door at a fraction of the price I'd pay elsewhere. I use Thrive to order not only pantry staples like coconut milk, dark chocolate, and collagen peptides, but also toxin-free personal and household products. Thrive makes it really easy to find what you're looking for, whether that's paleo, low-carb or keto, or gluten-free. You can filter by more than 90 values and lifestyles to find what works for you. I also love Thrive's values as a company. They offer carbon-neutral shipping, and when you become a Thrive member, you sponsor a family in need. Join Thrive Market today and get $80 in free groceries. That's thrivemarket.com slash revolutionhealth, all one word, to get $80 in free groceries. That's thrivemarket.com slash revolutionhealth. You probably know that the human body is mostly water. What you probably don't know is that everything else in your body is 50% amino acids. These building blocks of life are essential for health and fitness. No matter how you like to move, whatever you do to stay fit, amino acids are essential. This is why Keon Aminos is my fundamental supplement for fitness. I drink them every day for energy, to build muscle, and to recover faster. Keon Aminos is backed by over 20 years of clinical research, has the highest quality ingredients, no fillers or junk, undergoes rigorous quality testing, and tastes amazing with all natural flavors. So if you want more energy, lean muscle, and faster recovery, you need to get Keon Aminos. You can now save 20% on subscriptions and 10% on one-time purchases. Just go to getkeon.com slash Cresser. That's G-E-T-K-I-O-N dot com slash Cresser. So when you look back, I mean, that's quite a story. I really loved hearing it. And there's a lot there 
I think that a lot of people can relate to, you know, not necessarily being the best in the world at something, but just the, um, you know, facing all of the different challenges and the way that you approach those and overcame those. And, and also, uh, I think a lot of listeners in the podcast, and I have my own version of this story, have had a situation where we were essentially forced into taking care of ourselves for, for some reason or another. In your case, it was the pandemic that shut down the competitions and really kind of gave you permission in a way to back off that you weren't able to give yourself before that happened. For me, it was a chronic illness that made it impossible for me to keep going at the frequency <laughs> that I was going at before. So when you think back on that, like, how has that changed you? What you know, what, what looks different in your life now, in your training, in how you relate to yourself, you know, what did you take away from that experience? Yeah, I think obviously, and, and I, I alluded to that already about just changing the perspective of cha changing your perspective, your mindset from how fast can I accomplish a certain task to making sure that, that you're taking care of yourself in the process and you're prioritizing your recovery and you're prioritizing adapting to your workouts and you're prioritizing your mental health and, and your, and your heart and your bloods and just everything that plays a role in, in, in that pursuit of the peak level of shape that you're aspiring to have. Now, obviously none of that can happen if, if those fundamental pyramids or fundamental uh, health markers are not there. Right. So again, when we're young, we don't really pay attention to those things. We think nothing's ever going to happen to us until something does, you know, in the form of an injury or an illness or mental health, whatever it is. And that's when you kind of realize, but it's funny because I don't think that anybody listening to this will actually get it until something like that happens to them. It really, so it's, it's, everybody learns in one way or another sooner, sooner or later. Um, another way in which in which that whole experience changed me is in the the reasoning behind like my why of pursuing certain things like why am I wanting to be the best powerlifter in the world why am I wanting to to you know be a professional boxer why do I want my business to grow to six figures plus you know what's the reason behind all of that and before it used to be mainly external mainly driven by it's it just external validation, essentially. I don't know if it's because of the way that I was brought up or just constantly having to prove myself to peers and family members and teachers and whatnot, because I was always kind of, you know, the, the, the black sheep that people never thought was, was going to be anything. Um, and now, I'm not saying that I've accomplished everything that I wanted to accomplish by any means, like I still consider myself pretty ambitious and, and I'm by no means content with, with where I am in life. But I think that when you start doing things for yourself, again, it's a much, and it's just a shift in perspective, right? Like it doesn't change your, it doesn't change your, your, uh, the intensity at which you tackle certain things. It doesn't change how, how hard you work or how, how, um, long you dedicate to something it doesn't change anything it's just that slight shift in perspective of like why am I doing this you know am I doing it for myself and when when doing it for yourself is the answer it just leads to so much more happiness and enjoyment of the process again tying it back to when you're younger right like when you're young you just do things for yourself because like 
because you like it and it doesn't matter if it's going to take you five years to to even like be stop being benched you know and and just be in it play the the first um I, how do you say it in english like the first the first period right first yeah. half first and soccer. first half first half yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter to you because you're doing exactly what you want to be doing you're doing it out of enjoyment out of just for yourself you know it took me when i started playing soccer like i said i sucked and it took four three four five years for me to even just stop being benched and play 15 minutes of the game mm -hmm. legit you know and um and I, I remember really losing that when I grew up after soccer, especially getting into CrossFit, just, just feeling like I was running out of time. You know, even being 19 and 20 years old, I felt like I was too old because right. there's this like arbitrary timeline at which everything is supposed to happen right in my head. I only had nine more years because when you're 30, you're old. So I had this, again, this, this pressure that was, really manufactured by by society I created this beliefs in my head of when things needed to happen for me that made me not be patient that made me not enjoy the moment and made me not not uh be process oriented and just want the results right then and there that led me to be extremely injured and you know ultimately ending my my career prematurely in powerlifting right Let's talk a little bit about that specifically, um, back pain injuries. So you've written a book back in motion and you've, you've had your own personal experience with back pain. I imagine you've worked a lot with people with back pain as a physical therapist and your book outlines a, a really different approach to how to even think about back pain from the start and then what to do about it. So tell us a, a little bit about you know, some of the biggest myths about back pain, let's start there. And then we can talk about how the science of understanding pain has evolved over the, over the recent couple decades, because there has been some huge changes that I don't think have really percolated down to mainstream awareness. Yep, absolutely. So back in motion is a book that I started writing right at the beginning uh, of my ex own experience with back pain. I was, uh, I think starting my second year of grad school and I had access to all of these awesome professors that seemingly knew a lot about about the topic right and I was so disappointed because the answers were so inconsistent between one another it was like even like in the the diagnoses that I would get from from one professor to the other was diff heavily different the the their their rationale for why it happened was different and their plan of care was different as well and to me it was it was so confusing because when you're in grads when you're getting a degree that is required in order in order to get a license you are forced to think inside the box right because essentially they're 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 covering their own their own ass where they're teaching you this very like methodical thought process way of doing an examination, you take history, evaluation, exam, and you have all of these like special tests that they call that you either circle yes or no. And it's all of these like boxes, step by step process that essentially prevents you from thinking on your own and thinking based on first principles, right? Like you're forced to think by analogy, you're forced to think based on what they think is the way to think not not what you're actually observing 
and what is actually in front of you. So that became very obvious to me quick uh, in, in, in that kind of just pursuit for an answer for what was going on with my back. And that's kind of what, what made me interested in the topic and what made me want to start doing research and writing things down. It was, it wasn't, it was never at the beginning, it was never my intention to write a book. It was just literally, I'm going to, I'm going to start a file that has all of the current best practices about back pain and all the best research. And I'm going to pay attention to, to neuroscience, uh, neuroscientists and pain and pain specialists that talk about this. And I'm just going to try to put everything together for my own uh, understanding. And as I gathered a little bit more clarity on the on this subject, I I wanted to find a way to get this information to other people because I found it so helpful in a period of so much uncertainty. Because experiencing back pain is is a little I don't know if have you have you ever had an experience with back pain? I have, yeah. Yeah. It's so much different than any other injury that you have because it's like one, the way that most therapists and doctors explain it to you makes it seem like it's so much more of a bigger deal than it actually is so in your head you're already making it seem like it's this like lifelong life sentence that you're gonna have that your discs are just perpetually degenerating and that your that your jelly donut is is leaking outside everywhere in your nerves and you know the pain traveling down your leg it's gonna get to your toes and then you're not gonna it's just so and eventually uh, you'll get yeah eventually you have to have surgery and the surgery doesn't it, you know there's like a 50 50 chance that you might get worse or get better with the surgery and yeah yep. it's a pretty bleak thing and they they thought picture of, they paint they thought of also they thought of a back surgery i don't know why it's so much worse than a knee surgery or shoulder surgery it's like if you have a back surgery like you have a big problem there you know yeah. And, and those beliefs influence our, our perception of pain as well. So I was like, man, I need to find a way to, to put all of this together in a way that's, that's easy to digest for most people. And then come up with, with a very general plan of care for most people to be able to follow alongside uh, them, improving their understanding of what back pain actually is. So that's kind of, that was the, the inception of the book. The book does start with the, the most common back pain myths. And I think I'm not going to be able to like, I think there's like 10 of them that we write about, but I'll just cover, I'll just cover them. Pick a couple of your favorites. Yeah. The first one is that you need an MRI in order to determine what the cause of your back pain is. Um, surprisingly MRIs for the purpose of, of identifying someone's cause of back pain are only 56% sensitive. So that means most of the time they're giving you either confounding, uh, confounding uh, findings or false positives, right? So we know already that the answers that you get from an MRI are not correlated at all really with your pain experience. The example that I can give you is, listen, I spent you know, three years with just awful, awful back pain. And I just refused to get an MRI because I, that was one of the first papers that I ever read. And I'm like, man, I don't need the MRI because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the MRI says. I still have to be doing the same thing that I'm doing. But eventually I was like, you know what? I'm curious. I'm going to do it for science. Like I want to see what the MRI says. 
subconsciously I was like, I really hope something comes up in the MRI. Like I really fucking Smoking gun. Yeah. I really just hope that there's something so obvious there that I could, that I could, you know, fuse together that I could get a surgery or I could get an injection or, or something that would give me much, much more clarity into this whole thing. Go get my MRI, come out squeaky clean, nothing. Meanwhile, I can't bear, I can't bend. Oh my God, does this make any sense? I've seen but again, those, stu- those studies too, and I've talked about them. The one at UCLA where they you know, took people with back pain, gave them MRIs, just as many people who had pain had, you know, no issues. And just many people who had no pain had, you know, slip discs or other structural problems that you would expect would, would cause pain. And yeah. I, you know, I've been treating patients for 15 years. I've had so many com- conversations with them about this, where they come into the clinic and they say, oh, I got to get this surgery because I had an MRI and I, you know, I had a disc issue or this issue. And it takes a lot of talking people out of that, that, that this is not necessarily even the cause of your pain. Correlation is not causation, right? That's a fundamental principle in science, but I think it's really hard for us to, to get over that. You know, yeah. if someone has pain and then they have an MRI and they see a, a structural issue, they just assume. And I'm, when I say they, I'm talking about the doctor too, but the doctor and the patient assume that those two things are related. And what you're saying and what the science says is they're not often related. Also, isn't it crazy how it immediately becomes part of people's identity? Yeah. It's like the, the second that they're diagnosed with a herniated disc, a disc herniation or something more concrete on their back it's forever a thing. Like they'll come three years later and be like, oh no, you know, I have a bad disc. Fuck are you saying? Bad <laughs> well, let's, 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 use that, let's use that as a way of a segue to talk about the changing understanding of pain and particularly neuroscience and neuroplasticity, because I, you know, you said something earlier that I wanted to highlight where, you know, our, this is the, this is the, the revelation of neuroplasticity and neuroscience is that our beliefs and our perceptions directly influence our physical body and our experience of ourselves. And so if you have that belief, I have a slip disc, I have a bad back, I have, you know, chronic back pain. While that's understandable that you might have that belief, if you've had that situation for a long time, that's actually in some ways solidifying that, that pattern neurologically And we know that neurons that fire together, wire together. So the more you run that pattern, the more likely that that is to persist. And what's most difficult about that is that how can you trick yourself? And that was a question that I had for, who did I have? Greg Lehman, Dr. Greg Lehman. I remember asking him, I'm like, I understand what you are saying right now, but how do I trick myself into not believing what my mind is believing? Right. I get it. I get what you're saying, but I can't stop believing that my back's broken and I'm never going to be okay, like subconsciously. Say, I think a big part of that has to do with, with having a better understanding of what pain actually means in our body, you know, because it's like, it's like saying, it's like telling yourself to not think of a pink elephant, like the first thing you're going to do is think of a pink elephant, right? So it, it doesn't work that way. You can't really trick yourself to not think about something because it does the, the opposite effect. But you can prove yourself through finding things that you thought you weren't capable of doing. You can actually prove it to yourself by doing these things that you were catastrophizing and being afraid of and developing a better understanding of, of what pain means and 
the limits that it doesn't impose on yourself, right? The best way that I can explain pain, and I think this is from also from one of Greg's books, that's free. It's a free resource. You guys can download it. It's pain ex being explained as a smoke alarm. So when you're cooking, you're in your kitchen, you're cooking some bacon, your alarm goes off. Is it a good indicator of the level of threat that you're under or amount of danger that you're under? Not really. You're just at home. It's 9 a.m. You're cooking breakfast. You're having a sip of coffee and orange juice and the alarm went off. Like nothing about that should really alarm you. Like anybody in their rational, in their rational head can be like, all right, it's the bacon that set off the alarm, right? So our brains are the same way. Our alarm, our pain sensor alarm can also go off, can be highly sensitive for X, Y, Z reason. Maybe it was a previous experience. It was a previous experience that was similar to that environment that you were once in that's triggering your brain to think that you're in, thre in, in threat or that you're having a threat. And so just understanding that the brain's sensitivity to external stimulus can influence your perception of threat around you, that alone should, should give you a more a bigger sense of security of of what you can and can't do so i think the second thing is that he mentions is using pain as a uh, like a traffic light so a certain level you should never try to get rid of pain because pain is an is a is a is a positive thing for survival it always has yeah. been you don't want to eliminate pain you just want to use it to your advantage so you can make informed decisions about your movement your life and your and your training essentially so once you understand that, you, you start realizing that you don't have to be pain-free to start doing the things that you enjoy or that you thought you couldn't do, right? Understanding that maybe a three out of 10 pain is acceptable for you to um, try to bend forward and touch your toes. Understanding that maybe a five out of 10 pain is acceptable for you to do a farmer's walk, you know, a, an isometric contraction that doesn't, you know, put any sort of structure at any, any sort of risk. It's just kind of understanding what that pain means and understanding what it allows you to do and slowly keep uh, keep progressing and exposing yourself to the movements that you were once afraid of. Yeah, this is, um, I think, such an important perspective. And I I talk about it a lot in, in patients that I treat with chronic illness where, you know, sometimes there's the belief that they have, you know, they have to become completely symptom-free in order to live a happy and rewarding life. And I really try to invite them to see that differently because sometimes symptoms like pain are just a yellow light to use the traffic signal, or they're just uh, a, an artifact of that neural pattern that was created when the, the, the situation was more severe. And it doesn't mean that if you have a symptom that you have to never eat that food again, or you, you can't, you know, push yourself a little more with exercise or whatever you're doing to try to recover your health. And I think if, if you stay in that belief where any kind of symptom discomfort or pain is an immediate invitation to stop <laughs> what you're doing and contract, then you're not going to make as much progress. So Absolutely. talking about, um, you mentioned neuroplasticity, I have such a, a crazy example of that. I vividly remember at the peak of, of my back pain, I don't know. I went into the gym and I, and I just said, okay, like my back's really bugging me today. I'm just going to, I'm just going to have a light deadlift session. I, I don't want to miss the, the session completely. I'm going to work on something else, maybe like my, my timing or my coordination or 
or, um, or my positions. Like I'm gonna work on something else. That's not strength. And that day I came in, my back pain was so bad. And it literally felt like the distance that I had to move the bar from floor to, to lockout was twice as much. My perception of the amount of work that I needed to do was so exaggerated and and I and I spoke to Greg, I think, because I was doing like these uh like weekly sessions. And I spoke to him about it. I'm like, dude, it feels impossible to lift now. It was two plates and it was it was 120% of my max. It felt like it was the, the weight of the world was on that bar. And secondly, it felt like it, it traveled for two days straight. Like it was impossibly long distance. When he explained to me, I, I I don't I can't remember exactly the explanation. I'm not very well versed on like the science of neuroplasticity, why that happens, but but that was that was his explanation for me. Yeah, it's uh, so one of my favorite examples of neuroplasticity and and neuroplasticity. I've, I've talked a lot about it on the show, but just for listeners who are new to it, it it's a double edged sword, right? On the one hand, we can you know, it, it tells us that our beliefs and our experiences can literally change the structure and function of our brain. And that can be in a positive direction, right? But it can also be in a negative direction, which is what we've been talking about somewhat where we have uh, limiting beliefs, or we have, you know, an in we had an intense traumatic experience. And that creates a kind of trauma loop in the brain that stays stuck, even when we're, we're safely out of whatever those circumstances were that caused that trauma. But one condition that I often use to kind of illustrate this to my patients is uh, CRPS or complex regional pain syndrome, which you're probably familiar with as a physical therapist. This is a really interesting condition in, in the sense that, so, so for those who aren't aware, it's a, it's a broad term that describes excess and prolonged pain that follow, typically follows some kind of injury or inflammation. So the, the normal course of events would be, you know, you twist your ankle, you get a lot of swelling and information, uh, inflammation, which is appropriate in that situation because it's needed to heal. And then your body, your brain gets the signal that the threat has passed, that the inflammation resolves, the pain resolves, and you go about your business. That's the normal thing that should happen. In CRPS, what happens is the injury occurs, the inflammation and pain and swelling happen. And for some reason, which we don't fully understand, the brain continues to believe that the injury just happened and is still there. And so the inflammation and the pain don't go away. And I find that that's a, it's a fascinating example because objectively speaking, there is no more injury. That's passed, that's healed, but the brain is sending signals to that area as if that injury had just occurred. And to me, that's a really good example of how separate the physical reality of the situation, the actual injury, and then the brain signal uh, is. And if we understand that separation, like you said, it gives us a little more freedom to explore a different way of being with some, with pain. Mm -hmm. I love that explanation. I'm going to use that. Sure. Yeah, you can take <laughs> it. Um, so what, uh, what's wrong with some of the most common treatments for back pain? You know, you, you and I probably agree on a lot of this stuff, like where you, you were in a, you know, graduate program, you were, you had access, like you said, to the, you know, top, professors who had studied this for their whole lives, but you were really disappointed in, you know, some of the conventional approaches and, and modalities. Yeah. So, you know, say more about like what you learned in that process and, and what you think is lacking with a lot of the typical approaches. Yeah, sure. The first one is, I guess, fear mongering of specific movements. 
demonizing specific movements and and heavily emphasizing others. For example, you know, when I was at the at the peak of my back pain, I remember talking to my spine professor, and he was like, "Yeah, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be deadlifting. Deadlifting deadlifting is what's what's leading to your back pain. It's gonna eventually break your back." And he really believed that, man. He really did. So. Deadlifting is what has saved my back, by the way. I will say that when I had back pain, you know, deadlifting is actually what has improved and eliminated my back pain for the record. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, fear mongering of, of movements. I don't think that's, that's ever, that does any good to anybody preventing people from, from moving in certain ways, like limiting their movement uh, options and movement variability that actually contributes to, to pain catastrophizing and contributes to, to pain in the future as well. Like I remember I went to see a, a, a therapist, actually I went to see uh, Stuart McGill even for my back and he pretty much prevented me from, oh my God, this was crazy. Listen to this story. So on a Monday, I deadlift 504 pounds for four reps. Okay. And my back was naturally sore after yeah. that. And then it, I was naturally very stiff, extremely stiff for the following. I had my appointment was two on a, on a set, which by the way, I, I, I respect him a lot as a, as an academic, but this was like something that I definitely didn't agree with. So go to see him on, on a Saturday and he's doing all of these provocation tests, whatever. I actually end up just two hours later after the eval, just everything that he was saying about my pain was so bad about my back was so bad that towards the end of the session, sorry, I'll go back to that. At the end of the session, when he is pretty much going over what, what I should and shouldn't do, a lot of his advice was centered around um, movement avoidance. Like even like on activities of daily living, it's like, okay, if you're gonna, if you're gonna put your socks on, get on one knee, like, like do a lunge and don't bend your back, put your, put your sock on and then put your foot next to the other one and stand up. So it was all, um, pretty much avoiding spinal flexion in, in any way, shape or form. And even though I knew that wasn't the, the, the best course of action, just the fact that he said that made me stop bending completely like through just in, in my daily life, like subconsciously. And that eventually led me to not be physically, not be able to bend my spine, yeah. which was insane. Like I completely lost my ability to, to bend my spine. I think that's, uh, that's one of them. And then I think the biggest one is the, that there's no bridge going from prehab or rehabilitation exercises into the exercises and movements that are actually required to live your life. It includes having a, a, a bent spine when you're picking your grandson off the, off the floor or like when you're bathing your dog, you know, on, or when you're picking up groceries, boxes from the ground and taking them up a flight of stairs. Like there's no logical progression from a dead bug and a bird dog and a side plank into functional activities or, or, or heavy lifting activities or, or even sport performance activities. Like there's no logical bridge there. I think those are like the two main things yeah. where, where the therapists get wrong. And I think part of it has to do with a little bit of a hidden agenda. And this is something that I picked up in, in grad school as well, is that while you're a healer and, and, and a clinician, you're also a salesperson. 
And that was one thing that made me really sad about school and turned me off from the profession was that I felt like a big part of, of the advice that we were giving people was centered around disempowering them, you know, making them feel and think that, that we have the magic touch, you know, that without them performing these exercises in front of us, without us starting the session with joint mobilization techniques and cupping and ART and whatever, whatever else, that they couldn't progress, right? Where I think that the plan of care should always be centered around empowering the, the, the patient or the person, the human that's in front of us, empowering them to be able to uh, make progress on their own. And, and there needs to be, again, that logical progression between the easy bands, isometric exercises to whatever is functional for their life, their lifestyle. I love that. Love that and, and love the book and your approach and think it's so needed in this uh, industry where there's, you know, frankly, kind of a lot of stuff that's out of date at this point, that where the, the, you know, typical recommendations are not in alignment with what the latest scientific research is telling us about pain. And that's something I really appreciate about your approach and your book. So um, can you tell people where to learn more about your work and pick up a copy of the book? Yeah, absolutely. You guys can pick up a copy at hybridperformancemethod.com uh, under the tab back in motion. Great. And then Instagram, are you on social media? Like where can people follow you and, and learn more about what's going on in, in your world and your boxing career and what's next for you? Yep. I'm on all of the social medias at Steffi Cohen. That's where you can find just my day-to-day -day stuff. And also the, the educational content that I post on YouTube is longer format still at Steffi Cohen and I'm fighting on July 8th. So you guys don't want to miss that. Nice. Good luck with that. Really enjoy yep. the conversation. Thanks for joining us. Likewise. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Keep sending your questions at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. We'll see you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.